You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. And you guys can be seated. My name is Matt Bertrand. Uh, My wife, Joe, and I are part of the McLean Community Group. Uh, We're going to be reading out of Ruth chapter 2 this morning, starting at verse 14. We use the ESV Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles from here at the church, it actually starts on page 223. I'll give you a second to turn to it. So starting Ruth 2.14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, And it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. And she also brought out some of of her food, what she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you, Matt. Hey, good morning. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. It's good to be with you. Um, If you're a guest, thank you so much for visiting with us. Under your chair, there is a Connect card. You can take a minute, fill that out, and get it back to us. Uh, Let us know how we can serve you, how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And like Matt said, we are in the ESV. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. I'm going to allow Trenton to be the guy that that brings brings you the Bible if you need one, because he's he's back from his Corpus Christi exile for the weekend. So glad you're here, man. It's good to see you. So again, we're back in our walk through Ruth, and things in the narrative are really getting going. If you're a fan of like rom-com, the the rom is starting to get pretty rommy here, so uh, that's coming. But when we left off last week, we're introduced to this man, Boaz. Boaz, the text shows us, is wealthy, but more importantly, in in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that he is a worthy man. And Boaz is a worthy man in a time where there are not many worthy men around. Because again, this story takes place in the time of the book of Judges, which is the book right before Ruth. And the last verse in Judges says, In the time when the judges ruled, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
So we have Boaz, a worthy man, during a time where no one else is really, really worthy. We also see him in last week's text as an honorable employer. But more importantly uh, than just some of that workspace stuff, we see, we see him as a man who, with his life, follows God and seeks to honor God with his life. So this is evidenced by the way he and his employees interact with one another. And out of this, out of his relationship with the Lord, this overflows into how he treats others. Namely, for our texts and uh, our walk through Ruth, namely how he treats Ruth, a foreign widow. Ruth is, uh, she coincidentally finds herself in, in Boaz's field last week to glean. So her and her mother-in-law can have some food. We're reminded again of just the providential nature the sovereignty of God who works all things together for the good of his children. Ruth is led to glean, and she finds herself in Boaz's field. And because of God guiding her to this place, her life is about to be forever changed. But we, we don't see this for, for a few weeks. I'm getting a, a little bit ahead. But where we landed last week is this. Boaz is a picture of the coming Christ. Boaz is a picture of Jesus, a prophetic picture of Christ the Messiah. And this Messiah comes to provide rest for the weary. He comes to provide, provide comfort for the afflicted, and he comes to provide dignity for the outcast. And he also comes to provide life through his death. Boaz provides food for Ruth and provides food for Naomi, and he will rescue and redeem her in an earthly sense. And in a much greater and a much glorious way, Jesus Christ will accomplish her salvation and her redemption through himself. So this morning, this is a crucial text for us uh, as Christians. This is a crucial text for us in our walk through Ruth as we're going to learn more about Boaz and what his role is in this narrative. So for our purposes today, I just want us to dive into this text and continue to work through Ruth together. But I also really want to examine the nature of and the idea of what it means to be redeemed. What is redemption? You see, the story of Ruth is a story of all of us. We all need the kindness of Jesus to us. So I want to spend some time this morning just reminding us of our great rescue, that Christ came and died in our place. So let's pray, and we're going to jump in. Lord, would you, would you quiet my soul? Lord, would you just bring stillness in this room this morning. Lord, that you would comfort and bind up wounds amongst this people. Lord, may we see you in this text. Lord, may we see you working for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose, Lord, for your glory and for our good. Lord, help us to rest in your sovereignty. Help us to rest in your providence. Lord, help us to rest in the fact that nothing happens outside of your good and perfect will. Lord, you are using our suffering, you are using our struggle to perfect us and to glorify yourself. So may we just lean into that. Church, I'd ask if you were willing um, that you'd pray for yourself. 
and pray that the Lord would show you your great need for him this morning. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, it says, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. All right, so it's time for lunch. It's, it's work day here for Ruth. She has been gleaning in this field all morning. And just as a reminder as to what gleaning is, gleaning is a practice. It's given forth by the law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, which are Old Testament books. Um, and it is a provision for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless. So landowners would have their field, and they were required to not glean the whole field. Just They could glean right up to the edges of, of their field, but no further. And then they would allow the poor among them to work in order to provide for themselves. It was sort of like a work program to allow the poor in their communities to have some sustenance and, and to eke out a living. However, because of the time period that Ruth is set, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this probably isn't being practiced as much. So Ruth goes out to glean in hopes that she will find somebody who is kind to her, and she wanders into this field owned by this man, Boaz. So there, then we, where we get today, there's, it's lunchtime. So I'm inclined to believe, given the destitution that we have seen highlighted about Ruth and Naomi, Ruth has not packed a lunch because she has no lunch to pack. And again, we see this man Boaz, who was kind in last week's text, and he's kind again today. He calls Ruth over for a meal. He passes her some of his food, some of the roasted grain, and the text tells us she ate and she was satisfied and she even had some left over to take home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So Boaz is again providing for her and providing for her mother-in-law. We also learn a lot about the nature and character of Boaz at this mill. First, we see him as a non-traditional boss both for the time and then also for our time. So one of my favorite TV shows of all time, this is not an endorsement, by the way, uh, but one of my favorite TV shows of all time is The Office. Um, and there's the scene where the boss, Michael, is like sitting back in his chair and he's kind of pontificating about how great of a boss he is. He says, I treat my employees great. I provide for them. I give them money, and then I give them food. Well, not directly, but through the money. Um, Boaz is different. He pays them their wages, yes, but then he shows up at this field around mealtime and provides a meal for his workers. And not only does he provide this meal for his workers, like he's not having a Rosa's fajita platter delivered and bouncing. No, he sits down with his workers and he serves them. And he hands Ruth some of the food and he says, hey, do it like this. Dip your bread into the wine. Let me show you how to eat this meal. 
Because remember, Ruth is foreign. Ruth is from Moab. That's a different country. And so these social and cultural customs are likely very unusual to her. So he's caring for Ruth. Not purely by providing for her a meal, but he is also bestowing on her dignity. She's not his employee. She does not work for him. He doesn't really have to let her glean in his field, and he certainly doesn't have to invite her over to eat his food. Ruth's presence in Boaz's life is no benefit to him. And he's kind to her anyways. But he goes further He says, Ruth, come over here, join us, sit down with us, sit down by my workers, be a part of us. Maybe for the first time in a very long time, Ruth feels like a person. Ruth has shown her worth, Ruth is being shown her value, Ruth is being shown her dignity as a person made in the image of God. Because Boaz is kind. And he's kind simply because of God's kindness to him. Try to put yourself in that position if you can. It's hard as Americans to think about like being hungry. We have HEB and Market Street and two Walmarts. Like, there's food everywhere. Stocked full. Grocery stores just stocked full. But for Ruth... This meal is an absolutely wonderful blessing and probably a huge surprise. Ruth will not have to worry about having enough to eat this day. May this lead you, just this is just a little aside, just may this lead you to consider how we care for those around us. May this lead you to be thankful for the blessings in your life, the blessing of food, and the blessing of food in abundance. And may we just really have the eyes of Jesus to seek out and to serve those in need. Boaz is a picture of the loving kindness of God to his people. He's a generous employer. He honors his employees. This picture that we're given is not like a tray of finger foods, like a vegetable and a fruit platter. No, this is a feast. Ruth has leftovers to take home with her. This is a picture of abundance. Tony Marita compared this event to Jesus feeding the 5,000. Everyone ate, and everyone had enough, and they picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. We saw the Lord providing bread in the wilderness to satisfy his people. We see Ruth eating bread and being satisfied. And years later, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, would come from Bethlehem and satisfy our longings that the world just cannot. Boaz provides Ruth with food to meet her physical needs. Jesus, later, he's coming from the line of David, which is Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson. Spoiler alert. Um, Jesus would come from this line and provide for the spiritual needs of the world through himself. But for now, we have Ruth eating a mill in a field. And the mill is over, and it's time for her to get back to work. Verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. 
And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. Here we go again with this Boaz guy. He's providing above and beyond. Usually the the practice of gleaning is this. When one would glean, they would pick up grain off the ground that had fallen out of the sheaves off the ground or that was accidentally overlooked by by the reapers. And this is how Ruth has been gleaning all morning, picking up little heads of grain off the ground, gathering small amounts in order to eke out a meal. And Boaz changes all of this. Boaz is saying, hey, let her do what she wants. Let her go where she wants. Leave her alone. Let her take what she needs. And he also tells them, hey, be careless. So the law would tell you if you're a reaper, if you dropped your harvest on the ground, you could not pick it up. It belonged to the poor. It belonged to the widow. It belonged to the fatherless who were gleaning in the field. And Boaz says, hey, accidentally dropped some of your, some of your load there. And just like right in front of Ruth, whoops, that's, that's what he's telling them to do. Just let Ruth do her thing, please. What amazing kindness. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So Ruth has had a productive day, I mean a whole ephah, (laughs) what is that? Uh, Well, I'm glad you asked. She takes her gleanings, she beats it into a flour or a powder, and again, we don't use an ephah for measurement anymore, PTL. Um, but one ephah is the equivalent of 22 liters, which in pounds is 35 pounds of flour. Like, imagine going into Sam's and buying those economy sacks. You'd like need two, maybe four. Uh, to, that's an ephah. Like a few of these sacks, one ephah. Okay, there you go. You've got a mental picture. And so... Here's Ruth with 35 pounds of flour after a full day's of work. She's got to lug this junk home. But she does it. Look at verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she said, Ruth, did you knock off a Sam's? No, I'm just kidding. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Ruth carries this weight into town. She's the world's first crossfitter. Um, And she presents it to her mother-in-law, like drops the ephah in front of her. That would be so cool, just... Right there. Take that, Naomi. And here's some roasted grain. Um, The text again reminds us of the abundance of this feast by saying what she had left over after being satisfied, she gave to Naomi. And before we dive into this little exchange between Ruth and Naomi, may we just take a second and highlight Ruth's kindness to Naomi. If you've been here, Ruth and Naomi's relationship is not... Um, very Hallmark Christmas movie-like. It is pretty cold and callous, if we're honest. But here's Ruth showing the same kindness to Naomi that Boaz has shown to her. 
Naomi is not deserving of Ruth's kindness. Up to this point in our story, Naomi has treated Ruth more like an inconvenience than like an actual person. And Ruth is kind and gracious to Naomi, even though she's so undeserving of this kindness. And may this be a challenge to you. Even a, maybe this is an encouragement to you just to love and care for people who are challenging and difficult. May we just remember the great love that Christ has shown us to love the least deserving people, you and I. So Ruth comes in, and we see Naomi's excitement. You notice this little shift beginning to take place in Naomi. This woman who two weeks ago says, call me Mara because I'm so bitter, is no longer as bitter as she was. She begins to pray blessings on Boaz. We see some of this softening as her circumstances see to be changing by the evidence of God's grace to her. She's seeing the Lord work. And look at how she responds, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, that's Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Redeemer, that'd be a good name for a church someday. Um, this is an interesting statement by Naomi. She says, there is a kindness that has not forsaken the living or the dead. But whose kindness is she talking about? Based on the structure of the sentence, it is either Boaz or God. And it certainly could be attributed to both. But I believe Naomi is attributing this kindness to the Lord, whose kindness is then revealed in the kindness of Boaz. This is important for us to notice, Christians, because if we only attribute this kindness to Boaz, then this could easily become work hard, be nice to people, do all the right things, and God will bless you. Look at Boaz. But no, Boaz is only kind because the Lord has been kind to him. And Naomi is recognizing this. The point of this story and the thrust of this text is that God is the one who has been kind. God is the one who has been kind to Naomi. God is the one that has been kind to Ruth. God is the one who stopped the famine. God is the one who has preserved a redeemer for them. Naomi is experiencing this personal revival as the sun is beginning to peek out behind the dark clouds of her, of her life. Tony Morita, again, he says, Naomi's view of the Almighty has been restored. Her bitterness is being replaced by thankfulness. By saying that the Lord has shown kindness to both the living and the dead, she is saying that the Lord has been kind to her whole family. Remember, these two women are widows, and Naomi is saying, he has been kind to the living and the dead. He has been kind to me and my family, both me and Ruth, two widowed women. And by highlighting that Boaz is one of the redeemers, she's hinting at a future hope. This speech is representing a turnaround from disparaging and, and accusatory language. With her speech, in her former situation, she only sees bitterness. 
Now she is recognizing that God's kindness has not forsaken her. We learn here more fully that Boaz is a close relative and therefore a potential redeemer. Here we're introduced to this ancient Near East, Old Hebrew concept of a kinsman redeemer. So let me summarize what this is briefly or the rest of the story will not make sense and just be super weird. So a kinsman redeemer is, is this. It's a close relative who is able to come to the aid of their family members. This is going to get more developed next week and the following week. But here is how it played out in the Old Testament. It, it's played out in two ways. Uh, we've talked about a, a leveret marriage here. When a man marries a woman and he dies without them having kids, the man's brother would then marry the widow and have a child with her so that the man's familial name would continue on. Again, super weird, not our custom, but this is how things worked back then. Here's, a, here's another one. Uh, another instance would be like if a family member became poor, oftentimes they would begin to lose their property, and at the end, the last thing, they would have to be sold into slavery or indentured servitude in order to pay their debts. And a kinsman redeemer would be a person of means, and he would come and pay their ransom. He would buy their property back. He would pay the price to redeem them from slavery. And this isn't entirely Ruth and Naomi's situation, because though they are poor, Ruth and Naomi are not in debt and they're not enslaved. Boaz is also not a brother of Ruth's husband. And because Ruth is a foreigner, Boaz doesn't really have any obligations to do anything. He is purely a relative. He does have the right to redeem if he so chooses but he does not have the obligation to do anything. I can do this if I want to. I don't have to do anything. You see the distinction? He doesn't have to marry Ruth in the same way he would if his, brother's wife, if his brother died because Ruth is a foreigner. Ruth is from Moab. Ruth is outside, formerly outside the covenant by virtue of her birth. We also hear in this text that there are two potential redeemers, Boaz and a plus one. There is one more closely related to Naomi through her husband. And we'll learn about this guy in, in a couple weeks. The first right of refusal belonged to that guy because he is a closer relative than Boaz is. And knowing all of this, with every possible out he could take, Boaz is still a man of kindness and grace. Boaz could have done nothing and would have been justified in doing nothing. And yet he has done so much. He is a man motivated by love. Christian, hear this. Boaz is a man motivated by love. Because God has first loved him. What about you? What about you? 
Are you motivated by love for others because of the love of Jesus to you? Does the cross, does the sacrifice of Jesus to redeem your soul move you to more love for others? Or do you remain cold and distant towards others? Does the realization of what you have been saved from move you to love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Does it propel you to mission to tell others about Christ? Or are you just doing the churchy things? Man, if you're not a believer, I also want to tell you this type of love is available to you. Christ went to the cross. Christ went to the cross in order to accomplish your salvation. Christ loves you, and with everything you have ever done, and knowing everything you will ever do, Christ still loves you. And Christ is calling you into his family because Christ is motivated by his great love for you and for his creation. So what about you? Verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It says Ruth the Moabite again. Did you catch that? Ruth the Moabite. Again, the narrator is wanting to highlight some of the ethnic tension here. So Ruth the Moabite, talking to her mother-in-law, the Hebrew, summarizes her new work-based relationship, her new role, her new employer. And Naomi's like, yeah, all that is real good, and you're going to be safe there. That's great. And we're told that she stays with uh, Boaz's young women until the end of the harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law, Naomi. The season ends a couple of months later, and Boaz is still just a kind boss and a gracious provider. Nothing more. At this point in the story, unless you've read ahead, you're like, nothing's happening. (laughs) Want them to fall in love and live happily ever after. None of that. Boaz is just her boss. So to be continued on that front. But here's where I want to focus the last bit of our time today. We've been introduced to Boaz as a redeemer. Naomi says he is one of our redeemers. And if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, um, new to any of this, uh, a redeemer and redemption are huge mega themes in the Bible. So I just want to walk through these a couple of these things together. So first, I just want to consider the nature of the Bible together. The Bible is not a book of disjointed stories, but it is a unified story about a God who has created a way for his people, his creation to be rescued and redeemed and restored back to himself. So because of our sinful condition, we are broken and needy people, dead in our sin from the moment we were conceived in our mother's womb. 
We need a Savior to save us. Ruth is a story about us all and an example of how this redemption can be accomplished. The book of Ruth highlights for us the steps of redemption. So I borrowed these from Tony Morita's commentary. He's one of my pastoral man crushes. Um, But they're so good, and I want to share them for our benefit and for our edification. Um, So first, when we talk about redemption, first, we need to see the need for our redemption. We need redemption because we are helpless. Redemption, like, think about it in terms of, like, you have a coupon for a free whatever at HEB, and you go and get the whatever off the shelf, and you hand them the coupon. Like, you're exchanging one thing for another. So we need redemption because we are helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We are broken and sinful, and we can do nothing about it. We can do nothing to improve our situation. We are all born into sin. Again, we can do nothing about it. We are sinners by nature, and we can do nothing about it. And the Bible is full of examples of the human need for redemption. In Ruth, it is two desperate, poor, and hungry widows in need of food and family. Man, a husband for Ruth and a child to continue on the line will fix the situation. But they can't do anything to fix their problems. They need a redeemer. Another biblical example would be like the book of Exodus. The weak and powerless nation of Israel need intervention. The people were enslaved to the Egyptians and God rescued them. God redeemed them because they could do nothing to improve their situation. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we see the neediness and the helplessness of every human ever. Ephesians 2, 1-3 tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans 5 tells us that we're slaves to our sin. We are unable to free ourselves. And we are unable to love God the way that God has called us to love Him. And because of that, we are under the wrath of God against sin, condemned to hell, condemned to death. We are like sheep without a shepherd in need of the kindness of the good shepherd to rescue us. And so many times, we are just completely unaware of this. It would be easy to read the story of Ruth and think, man, Ruth could really use a husband. Or it would be real easy to read the book of Exodus and think, man, Israel could really be freed from slavery. That would be helpful. And we can be so blinded by our own spiritual depravity and our own sin and everything else, all the disorder and destruction that sin has created in our life. In order to be rescued from our great need, we have to see that we are in great need. So we have a need for redemption. But next, there's a price for redemption. And Ruth, we'll see in a couple weeks that in order to redeem Ruth as a wife and Naomi, in order to redeem them, this is going to cost Boaz some money. It means providing for them. It means continuing the line so he has to have a child with Ruth. All of this is risky because if chance, if by chance Boaz falls into poverty, they would all end up enslaved. And spoiler alert, 
the closer relative that we've foreshadowed about, he is going to be unwilling to pay that price. And yet Boaz is willing to take that risk. And Boaz is willing to pay that price. In the book of Exodus, we see the Passover lamb. The Passover is a time when um, God says he was going to kill all the firstborn in the land. But in order for the nation of Israel to be spared from death, they would take a pure and spotless lamb and they would kill it. And they would sprinkle his blood over the doorposts and the lentils of their houses. And when the Spirit of God, coming through the land, sees the blood of the lamb, he would pass over the house, thus saving those inside. This redemption costs life in the form of a lamb dying. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus as the Lamb of God. The Apostle Paul says that we are bought with a price. That's 1 Corinthians 6.20 if you're taking notes. Our need for redemption was bought at a great price through the precious blood of Christ. This Jesus is the Lamb slain for sinners. Our redemption is accomplished at great cost. The perfect, sinless Savior died in order to accomplish our rescue. The price of our redemption has been paid. So we see through the need of our redemption and the price of our redemption, we have a Redeemer. We see the glory of the Redeemer. What we will see in Boaz is, is the willingness to redeem Ruth. So in order for someone to be a Redeemer... They have to have the willingness to redeem, and they also have, the, have to have the ability to redeem. Boaz has both. He can redeem one. He can redeem Ruth. He has the financial means necessary and the familial ties in order to do so. He was selfless. He cared for the powerless. He cared for the poor. Boaz is a reflection of God. But Jesus is the true and better Boaz. Jesus can redeem the whole world. Jesus was selfless. He did not count equality, not was selfless. Jesus is selfless. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, lived the life we should have lived but couldn't, and died the death we should have died but will never have to. That death was reserved for you because of our sin. But we will never have to go through it because if we are in Christ, Christ died in our place because of his great love for us. Satisfying the wrath of God against sin, Jesus Christ brings about our adoption through his death and through his resurrection. The nature of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, is evidenced by his willingness to redeem and his ability to redeem because he had no sin in him. Jesus went to the cross in selfless love for you and I, and that ought to lead us to worship, church, and it ought to motivate us to obedience, church, and it, and it ought to motivate us to follow Christ by living like Christ. Christ is able to atone for, Christ is able to pay for the sins of the world because he is God. 
His glory, being equal with the Father, means that His worth is immeasurable, and therefore the purchase of sinners by His blood is of immeasurable value. Christ is glorious. And finally, because of our need for redemption, which has been secured by the price of redemption paid through Jesus because he is the glorious redeemer, resurrected King Jesus, we have been invited into a family. So there is the familial nature of redemption. Man, redemption in the scripture is always spoken about with familial language. Like we're not called to a idle, isolated, me and Jesus type faith. Yes, there is a personal element to that, but you are called into a family. In this case, we see Ruth and Boaz, their relationship will lead to marriage, and it leads to intimacy, and it leads to offspring, and the familial line is continued and ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the one promised who would reign forever. Redemption by God through Christ, leads to relationship with God through the Spirit of God, which leads to intimacy with God. And through our relationship with God, we have been invited into a family, the church. The redeemed in the Lord have been adopted into a family. Christian, you are an adopted child of God. And that makes you brothers and sisters with one another and brothers and sisters with Jesus and God's family. Galatians 4, 4 and following says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of sin. And that curse was crushing you. And he redeemed you from it. He paid your debt. He has redeemed us from sin in order to give us adoption. We could not keep God's laws. None of you can be good enough on your own. We could not live the way that God has called us to live. We needed this rescue, and Christ has paid that price. Imagine with me you're in a courtroom, and you're the one on trial. Okay? You're the defendant. And they're reading every charge against you, every bad thing you've ever done, thought, said, everything, and then you are just being exposed. And the sentence is death. You are about to be condemned to death. And the judge is just to do so, to con condemn you to death. And right as he's about to levy his sentence against you, the back doors of the courtroom swing open and in walks Jesus. And he walks past you and he walks right up to the father, the judge, and he says, I'll pay for it. I'll pay for his crime. I'll pay for her crime. And so the just judge sentences Jesus to death. And then the judge 
steps down from his bench and walks over to you and hugs you and says, come home with me. You see, that was my son that just died in your place. And now I'm going to give you everything that was due him. You are now the heir. You are now getting the inheritance that was due him. See, that's the kind of love that Christ has bestowed on you. He died in your place, securing your adoption by God the Father who has adopted you and made you an heir. Jesus is the only one who could satisfy the demand of the payment required by our sin debt. And it is only through Jesus that there is hope for any of us. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted, and that makes you an heir to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You will reign with Christ. Believers in Jesus, you will reign with Christ for all eternity. But more importantly, your inheritance is Christ. And so the calling on your life then is to stop living for yourself. Stop living for things that don't satisfy you. Stop trying to fill yourself up with money or possessions or sex and relationships or careers or the next vacation or whatever else it is. These things that don't honor the Lord. And those things are not bad in and of themselves, but if they become your only pursuit, they have become your God and all good things make really terrible gods. Those pleasures are fleeting. But God has called you to delight in him. And he will give you everything you need in this life for your joy to be complete in him. And there is grace and mercy for you at the cross of Christ, completed by the resurrection. But you have to recognize your need for redemption. You cannot get God, and you cannot get to God apart from faith and repentance by faith in God. Listen, man, I'm almost done. Here's the real danger. You may say all the right things. You may know some stuff about the Bible and God. But if you're living in willful and ongoing, unrepentant sin, and you're aware of it and you don't repent of it, when Christ is calling you to himself, when you look at your life and you minimize your sin by saying things like, yeah, I'm not that bad, or yeah, it's not that bad, or yeah, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as other people. Or this thing I'm doing that I know is against God isn't that big of a deal. Man, you may think you're a Christian and you may not be. Sin is more than just breaking rules. It's rebellion against the God of the universe. And he is worthy of your worship and he is worthy of your devotion and he is worthy of your obedience. So turn from your sins. Confess your sin to God. Confess your neediness to God. Confess your brokenness to God. Ask him for his forgiveness and receive his forgiveness because he is pleased to offer that to you. And he does so through himself. So I just call you to consider your life this morning. Are you following God the way he has asked you to? Is your life reflective of this calling? So repent, believe, place your faith in him. Let's pray.